At this point in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is midway through his three and a half year of ministry. He has traveled, as you'll see up here on the map, outside of the familiar confines of his beloved homeland of Galilee. And he's gone up to the region of Tyre and Sidon, which is up in the far top left-hand corner. You can see the red arrows going up there to the coastal city of Tyre. And up in that region, it's to the north and west of the Sea of Galilee. The sea of Galilee is where his work has exploded, literally, into tens of thousands of people. He is now leaving Tyre. He and his disciples journeyed westward. And then they went south into this area called the Decapolis. And it's down in this area right here. And it's up near the Sea of Galilee and the Decapolis. It's a Gentile area. And that is where he had recently, last week as Phil taught us, uh, fed 4,000 people, literally from seven loaves of bread and, and a few small fish. And the explanation of that fish is they're like sardines. I noticed a, f a few of you had those at lunch last week while we were here in the can. They're not very big. They don't feed very many people. God fed 4,000 people with seven loaves of bread and a bunch of sardines. While it's a very similar to the miracle of Jesus feeding 5,000 5, men, and we know that could be upwards of 25,000 people total, men, women, and children, in Jewish Galilee, this feeding in the Decapolis was the outreach of Jesus to the Gentiles. It was God's confirmation that the Messiah of the seed of Abraham would bring blessings to all nations. Just as he had promised Abraham centuries earlier in the covenant of faith. Now in the record of the scripture this morning, this morning we're going to look at two different types of heart conditions. There's no need for an EKG or an ultrasound. Instead, we're going to observe the signs and the indicators of the men with these heart ailments. Tragically, the first examination group is found to now be incurable. They have resisted treatment for too long of time. Their condition is terminal. And in fact, the master heart physician refuses them any further treatment after today's symptoms. They are walking dead men. The second group actually exhibits some outward similar heart activity as well as their own unique heart struggles. However, by the end of the examination period this morning, they appear to have hope of being successfully treated by the attending master physician. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning. Paul said that he came with in weakness and fear and a much trembling. Lord, I pray that you would grant us open hearts and open minds, grave, deep humility before you. Lord, especially for me. Lord, please grant me an emptying of my prideful, wicked self. Lord, that you could speak and you could move. Please, Show us who you are. Reveal to us the greatness of Christ Jesus. Lord, help us somehow to grasp what it was like for the Word who had existed for eternity with no beginning and no end that he would take on the body of a man 
and come as a servant. The king of creation would be a servant on this planet. And he would reveal himself to people. And that's what we're in the midst of trying to understand this morning, Father. Please help our simple minds to grasp you. In your name we pray. Amen. The account begins really this morning. We're going to begin a little bit back in 9, verse 9 of chapter 8. It says, And he sent them away. Who is them? It's the 4,000 people. People that Jesus has just fed. This is a largely Gentile group of men, women, and children. And they have just received the blessing of a miraculous meal provided by the Jewish Messiah. And verse 10 says, Immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and he came to the region of Dalmanutha. This village name does not appear in one single historical record outside of the New Testament. Matthew's parallel accounts indicates the name is Magdala. In 2003, during a time when the Sea of Galilee was at a historically low water level, remains of several previously unknown ports and villages were discovered in the lake bed, including what appears to some archaeologists to be Dalmanutha. These ruins are within a mere 500 feet of the village of Migdal, which is also referred to as Magdala. Modern-day Magdala has a population of almost 2,000 people. This ancient possible site, though, of Dalmanutha places it about six miles from Jesus' main headquarters in Capernaum. In the September 2013 edition of The Independent, we read the fields stretching between contemporary Migdal or Magdala and the coast have produced many archaeological discoveries. And researchers at the university have linked it to the 1986 discovery of a 2,000-year-old boat found on the shoreline. A boat that was 2,000 years old. We looked at that when we were talking about Jesus with his men in the boat on the sea. And we saw the skeleton remains of it. It's amazing. 2,000 years old. And it was found right there in this area. We don't know whether Jesus ever set foot on this boat. But we know that that boat was similar to the ones that he and his men went out on. We don't know exactly on these cities. But the remains and everything seem to make the possibility that this is where that city was. Now we're going to examine the signs of a dead heart. Beginning with Mark 8 verse 11. The signs of a dead heart. We demand more. Say these men. Then the Pharisees came out and began to dispute with him. Seeking from him a sign from heaven. Testing him. Pharisees. The name literally means separated ones. These are the same Jewish religious leaders. Who we last saw in chapter 7. They were angry. They were attacking Jesus. Why? Because his disciples did not follow their precious homemade rules. What we call the traditions of the elders. Traditions like you've got to wash in this special way. This fist washing. Every time before you take part in a meal. You've got these other traditions you must follow. The Pharisees, their rage has steadily increased since the time... Now look what caused them to be so furious. The time they actually witnessed a paralyzed man being brought down through the roof of a home and being completely healed by Jesus. And then he forgives his sins. 
When he forgave his sins, it ignited a fire in those guys that would never be put out. Matthew's parallel account of this in chapter 16 includes the Sadducees. They were also in this adversarial squad that comes up against Jesus. Now who are the Sadducees? Well, the Sadducees, they opposed the Pharisees on a huge number of issues. These two were never at the same party together. For example, they have no interest at all in the oral traditions of the elders. Those traditions of the elders that they were so angry with Jesus about, the Sadducees don't care about them either. In fact, the Sadducees believe only in five books of the Bible. The first five, they call them the book of Moses. Matthew, or not Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's the gospel. <laughs> it's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The first five books of the Old Testament is all that the Sadducees saw as inspired. Those were the ones they followed. They disregarded the rest of the Old Testament. Although that by, by that time, the books of the Old Testament had been established for centuries. The Sadducees did not believe in angels. The Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection of the body, nor the immortality of the soul. The Sadducees were the aristocrats. They were politically cozy with Rome. On the other hand, the Pharisees hated Rome. They hated its power over their land. These two would never be together. Yet one thing united these arch enemies. One person, in fact. One person, for about a three-year period of time, fused them together with one purpose. Not because of their unified admiration for him, but because they hated him. They must unite to see him destroyed. The Pharisees and the Sadducees now approach this man, this one singular man and his disciples, as his boat lands on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. That man, Jesus Christ. These Pharisees, they are after a fight. And they begin with a dispute. Some of your versions say an argument. Uh, some of, one of them even says mildly to question Jesus. But this is an all out high stakes battle for spiritual authority. Not to propose questions to him, wrote Henry. That they might learn of him. But to cross questions with him. That they might ensnare him. So if anyone reading this scene believes it to be purely a fact-finding mission or an effort to gain deeper understanding of who Jesus might be, they are dead wrong. They are seeking from Jesus a sign from heaven. Now with the clear nature of attack exhibited by the Pharisees, we know that this word seeking is much more the word demanding. One source defines seeking as an attempt to gain control. They are attempting to gain control. Now, we ask the question, had Jesus' ministry been short so far on miraculous signs? Think of what we've read about. Along with the more earthly miracles like simply giving sight to the blind, giving hearing to the deaf, causing lame men to walk, cleansing diseased people who are now strong, Jesus also repeatedly delivered demon-possessed adults and children to freedom. He raised the dead literally back to life. He had fed thousands upon thousands from just a few small biscuits of bread and a bit of fish. Not once, but twice. He had also, he had also harnessed the heavens. He brought a raging sea storm to its knees in command. And he turned its waves into a placid surface of glass. 
Well, had, had the news of all these supernatural wonders escaped the, the notice of the Pharisees? Mark 1, verse 28. And immediately his fame spread throughout all the region around Galilee. Mark 1, 33. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. Mark 1, 45. However, he went out and began to proclaim it freely, one of the men Jesus had healed, and to spread the matter so that Jesus could no longer openly enter the city, but was outside in deserted places. And they came to him from every direction. Mark 3, 7. But Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great multitude from Galilee followed him, and from Judea, and Jerusalem, and Idumea, and beyond the Jordan, and those from Tyre and Sidon. A great multitude, when they heard how many things he was doing, came to him. Mark 3.20 Then the multitude came together again, so that they could not so much as eat bread. Mark 5.24 So Jesus went with him, and a great multitude followed him and thronged him. Mark 6 Whenever he entered into villages, cities, or the country, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and begged him that they might just touch the hem of his garment. And as many as touched him were made well. Could that escape them? Now, if you were a basket repairman or a fresh vegetable vendor in Beersheba, and Beersheba is way to the south. If the map were up here, it would be down here even below Jerusalem, well over 100 miles away from the Sea of, Gen of Galilee. Perhaps at that point, maybe you wouldn't have been able to hear some of these things about Jesus. But the Pharisees... Not a chance. They knew what he was doing. They knew how he was impacting the nation. They saw their grip of control being pried away and the people looking to this man Jesus. They were looking to him for hope and for freedom and the true knowledge of God. The common people were breathing free and believing that God was true to his promises. But what the Pharisees and Sadducees requested indicated that all of this was not enough for them. They wanted this sign from heaven. Now what is that? A sign from heaven. Some suggest that this indicates the Pharisees wanted some higher degree miracle that would take place in the skies. And, and was this for this reason one that could no way be copied by magicians with demonic power. Like those who confronted Moses. Who could turn their rods into a snake like he did. They wanted something special up in the skies. Others believe this demand was to persuade Jesus. To show them a sign that they would know he was the great political Messiah. That they had been hoping for. But what they most wanted. If you remember these guys. What they most wanted was to prove that Jesus did not have power from God. They wanted to show that he was empowered by Satan. And that is what they had spread abroad and truly believed. Mark 3.22 And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, He has Beelzebub by the ruler of the demons. He casts out demons. So Jesus is in this position that they think they've got him on the ropes. They are here to test him. And again, when it says test, this is not an earnest attempt to find out who Jesus really was. The English word testing, wrote one commentator, is weaker than the Greek word it translates. Not to merely have a polite discussion or debate. They were deeply hostile toward him. 
Another wrote, this testing was an obstacle or a stumbling block to discredit him. In other words, what they have done is they have set a trap. And they have set it to disprove Jesus' claim of authority from his Father in heaven. You see what they're saying. They, they believe that he has no power from heaven, that he is demonically driven. And that's how he does these works. And so they believe that they can get him to say, no, I'm not going to do that. They can say, well, look, see, he doesn't have heavenly powers. He is driven by Satan. And if Jesus were to try it, they knew he couldn't do it because they believe his power is earthly. It is from the devil. So they've got him in this, what they think is a, a no-win situation. But as one of the study Bibles notes, Jesus does not perform signs on demand, especially not for those who are testing him. On a, and why I speak of testing in this type of a testing. On a previous occasion, Jesus had addressed a similar request in Mark, or excuse me, Matthew 12, verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. In the Matthew 16 account of this story, and, and remember it, it is written by Matthew. We have two beautiful perspectives on what Jesus is doing here. Sometimes one adds detail that the other doesn't. And so it's not a conflict, it's a benefit. We get to see this thing from 2D, 3D, even 4D in some cases when we have all four of the Gospels address the situation. Matthew wrote in there that Jesus gave the following answer to the Pharisees. When it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be foul weather today for the sky is red and threatening. Hypocrites, you know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign shall be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And he left them and departed. Jesus refused their demands, but he did promise them a sign, the sign of Jonah. The sign he would give these wicked leaders when within about a year's time, his glorious miracle of his death, burial, and resurrection from the dead would be displayed throughout the city. And Jesus' response to these men really is tragic for them. No more will be given them. Verse 12. But he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Assuredly, I say to you, no sign shall be given to this generation. It's interesting, sign. This Greek compound use of the word is found only here in all the New Testament. It means much more than just a deep breath or an expression of disappointment. It tells us, writes one commentator, he came to his absolute limit Humanly speaking of exasperation. He was sick and tired of this kind of response. This excuse of the Jews requiring a sign. It continued on past Jesus' ascension into heaven. It is even brought up at a later time by the Apostle Paul. When he writes his letter to the church in Corinth. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 
For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign, and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, a stumbling block, and to the Greeks, foolishness. In John chapter 15, 21. Through 25, Jesus spoke of the many signs and works that he did do among the people and how they still refused to believe. And listen to this carefully. John chapter 15, verses 21. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake because they do not know him who sent me. He's speaking of the world and how they will persecute and treat believers. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. But now they have seen and also hated both me and my father. But this was to fulfill what was written in their law. They hated me without a cause. And final response. To these dead hearted authorities. We read he left them. Got into the boat again. And departed to the other side. Left them. There's more to it than simply. Leaving that shore. Would Jesus deal with these leaders again? Not in Galilee. Not in Galilee. Later when he returned to Capernaum of Galilee. In Mark 9 it reads. Then they departed from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know it. And they went to the other side. They are now sailing to the northeast shore of Galilee. This next episode of Jesus' life takes place in the boat. And they are on their way to the town of Bethsaida. In this boat we will see the symptoms of hard hearts. The symptoms of a hard heart. What Jesus is saying is going right over their heads. Verse 14. Now the disciples had forgotten to take bread. And they did not have more than one loaf with them in the boat. It's one of those practical things that happens among the disciples that I say, well, I, I get that. You know, how many times has that happened to me? Uh, perhaps because of hasty departure, absent-mindedness, or poor planning, the disciples realize that they are in the middle of the lake. And they have one loaf of bread between at least 13 men. We don't know when they had last eaten. But it is very clear that one loaf of bread doesn't look like a full meal to these hungry men. Verse 15. Then he charged them saying, Take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Take heed, Peter, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Matthew, take heed. Beware, watch out for these leavens of the Pharisees and Herod. Jesus charged them. He was giving orders. He cautioned them. And it's in what we call the imperfect tense, which meant that it happened repeatedly and it's ongoing. He keeps warning them. In Matthew's edition, it also includes the Sadducees, the leaven of the Sadducees. So Jesus makes his point over and over again to them. Beware, watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod. Leaven. I have no experience with leaven. 
many of you do. So bear with me as I explain to the best I can. Leaven, such as baking powder, baking soda, or yeast. When it is kneaded into batter or dough, it creates tiny air pockets by producing a gas. It's either carbon dioxide or hydrogen. This makes the dough rise and become fluffy. Leaven can be added to a clump of dough and and kneaded into it so that it permeates the entire loaf. It causes the whole loaf to change and rise before being baked. Now, every New Testament analogy of leaven is negative except for one. In that one instance, Jesus likens leaven to the kingdom of heaven. Otherwise, for example, in 1 Corinthians, leaven represents pride, malice, and wickedness. In Galatians, leaven is false doctrine. In a dozen different scriptures, it stands for something that brings destruction and corruption. Jesus' analogy of the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod and the Sadducees is like yeast that permeates and expands through everything that it contacts. The influence of all these groups of men could be oppressive, it could be subtle, it could be beguiling and convincing, but in all cases it was worldly and of the devil. The Pharisees' leaven. Think of the Pharisees. It included false teaching, hypocrisy, legalism, power mongering, and unbelief. The influence of Herod. The man was grossly immoral. He was arrogant. And he would not believe. The Sadducees. The Sadducees typified compromise. Pragmatism. Rejection of scripture. And unbelief. Now while each had their nuanced and unique corruption. All were crippled by this incessant unbelief. They would not believe that Jesus was who he said he was. And the disciples in verse 16 reasoned among themselves saying. It's because... We have no bread. Now, both Mark and Matthew emphasize how these 12 closest followers of Jesus Christ were completely oblivious to the spiritual things that Jesus was talking about. They were clueless to what he was warning. If he mentioned leaven, then they think about bread and dough and yeast. Something that causes bread to rise before it is baked. And they're probably thinking, I I don't get it, but he's... You know, we don't have the bread. I'm sure he has, he's telling us something about our failure in that. They did not get it at all. But Jesus, it says, being aware of it, said to them, Why do you reason because you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive nor understand? Is your heart still hardened? Now Jesus is aware. It's obvious to Jesus what is going on. They haven't got it at all. So he tells them, You don't perceive. You don't perceive. They were privy to so much, yet they did not literally exercise the mind. They did not carefully observe and comprehend what he was saying or what was going on around them. They did not understand. And this is a way of saying all that you have witnessed and you don't put it together. Put the pieces together. And do you have a hardened heart? And, and I love this example, except it's so convicting. Is your heart so stony? Is it so literally petrified that all you have been a part of this last year makes no impression on that heart? Now that is a hard heart. 
You consider what they've seen, what he's done, all that's happened. And it's not making an impression on their hearts. The disciples and me and you, we have a responsibility here. The book of Hebrews chapter 3 says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. As in the rebellion in the day of trial in the wilderness. Rebellion brings about a hard heart. Do not rebel against the will of your God. Hebrews 3 verse 12. Be rare, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Continued sin, continued unbelief, will bring about a hard heart. Brothers and sisters, if you are participating in a sin that you continue and continue to have, your heart will grow hard and it will not be impacted by Jesus Christ. You will grow distant. Matthew includes in Jesus' rebuke, Oh, you of little faith. Jesus actually said that as well. Oh, you of little faith. Have, having eyes, verse 18, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? The analogy is great here. Seeing and hearing. These were miraculous gifts that Jesus had given to thousands of blind and deaf men, women, and children. The disciples, they'd literally witnessed this day in and day out. Countless times. Now they, even with healthy eyes and healthy ears, they don't have a clue about what Jesus is teaching. I hope this, this causes you to become a little uncomfortable. Because we are that group of people oftentimes. We have the scriptures. Jesus once said to the, the Pharisees, says, you have the graphe, you have the, the printed page, you have the written word, but you do not have the logos, the expression of God. You don't know who it is speaking of. These men had so much to see, but it wasn't sinking in. How often is that happening to us? We have an abundance of resources, but is Christ alive in our hearts and minds? Are we living for him moment by moment? But not only do the disciples not perceive or understand, they do not see or hear, but look at this, they do not even remember. When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketful of fragments did you take up? They said to him, 12. Also when I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large basketfuls of fragments did you take up? They said, seven. You don't remember. You don't remember what I did. Jesus then gives the disciples what they most needed. He gives them a rebuke, an exhortation. In verse 21, so he said to them, How is it you do not understand? He has asked eight questions. Boom, boom, boom. The ninth question encapsulates it all. How is it you do not understand? This is a rebuke. But, but it is a far different situation than the finality of Jesus' rebuke of the dead-hearted Pharisees. The dead-hearted Pharisees, 
He left them. And that's what we read. He left them. But the disciples, he rebuked them. With the Pharisees, Jesus had had enough. They will receive nothing more from him. And they will be left to their own evil and ignorance. To the disciples, however, remember Mark 8, 17. And take a close look at verse 17 with me. But Jesus, being aware of it, said to them, Why do you reason? Because you have no bread. Do you not yet perceive nor understand? Is your heart still hardened? Yet and still. They are two quite small words with tremendous significance. They communicate. They communicate failed expectation. They communicate frustration. Jesus has those. But they are also a promise of a future hope and growth. The disciples have shown dullness and hard heartedness before. Mark 6.52 For they had not understood about the loaves because their hearts were hardened. Mark 7.18 So he said to them, Are you thus without understanding also? Do you not perceive whatever enters a man from outside cannot defile him? These guys were continually in this position that they just didn't get it. They seemed to be dull. They'd see the most glorious examples. They'd be hearing the most authoritative words that have ever ever been spoken on this planet in all of history by the Son of God Himself. But it didn't sink into them. But Matthew, in chapter 16, verse 11, also this account, gives us a little hope that light is cracking through the darkness of the hearts and minds of these men. How is it, says Jesus, that you do not understand that I do not speak to you concerning bread? But to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Verse 12 then says, Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the doctrine and the, of the Pharisees and Sadducees. The disciples, they still have not yet understood at least three things here. They have not understood the power of Christ. It is limitless. It, it supplies every need. It controls the universe. This Jesus that stands, sits, stands before them in the boat at this moment is omnipotent. And they don't grasp that. They have not grasped the power of this Christ. They have not grasped the purpose of this Christ. Jesus has not come of his own purpose or will, but to do the will of his Father. John 5 verse 30, I can myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. The next chapter of John 6, verse 38. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John 8, 28. Then Jesus said to him, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father taught me, I speak these things. John 14. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority. But the Father who dwells in me does the work. They have not grasped Jesus' sole purpose in why he is going place to place and doing the things he is doing. Yet. And they don't know the person of Christ. This will change. Actually, this will change next week. When we read what happens, you will see a tremendous beginning of a peak 
and then a change in these disciples. But at this point, they do not have an idea that this is Christ, the Son of the living God. They do not grasp the person of Christ. Please turn with me to John chapter 1. I love Saturday nights. You guys know that. I was, just last, I'm looking at this, I'm thinking, I'm speaking to a young man who has no idea who Jesus is and thinks he was a good fellow. And that's it. And we're trying to help him understand. This is God. Jesus is God. And that's who walked this earth. And that's who said these things. And the disciples were grappling I think with some of the same things. John 1 verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. That Word is Logos. That is the Christ. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And without nothing, without Him, nothing was made that was made. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Then verse 9. That was a true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. And the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. They, if we could read that verse over and over again, we must grasp that. As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And the word, the Logos, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That is who Jesus was. The disciples didn't grasp that. Or they would not have responded as they did. Now they will. They will write the epistles. They will go throughout many of the developed world at that time. And almost all of them will die for this man Jesus. But they're not there yet. They will run and hide. Yet. But the time will come when they will grasp these things. Do you grasp those things? Do we grasp that? That this is who we say we know and we serve. This is who Jesus is. When there was nothing in existence. And how do you describe that? You can't. We can't grasp it. When there was nothing. Simply by his thought. He breathed a universe. Day by day creating it. In beauty for one week. In order in his time. Could have happened like that. But he had an order, he had a purpose, and he created it because of his will. That is the one whom we claim allegiance to. Who we give 30 seconds in the morning to say hi to. Colossians 1, verse 15 through 20. Colossians 1, 15, Paul tells us who Jesus is. He is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn over all creation. Now that does not mean that he was created or he was the first of creation that means in rank in superiority in position he is over all of creation for by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers all things were created through him and for him and he is before all things and in him all things consist 
And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead, that in all things he may have preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him, Jesus, all the fullness should dwell, the fullness of God would dwell in him, and by him to reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. What a hero. What a savior. Turn to Hebrews chapter 1. And this deep author of the book of Hebrews writes, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. That is Jesus. See him reign. See him rule. He is at the right hand of the Father. Because of what they lacked, I believe there were crucial elements missing in their relationship with Christ. At this point in the gospel, we have yet to witness the disciples Actually responding to Jesus with thanksgiving. With praise. In faith. In reliance. They, they, the only time hardy that they asked was when they were about to sink in this boat. And that was desperately. They haven't asked him. And I'm not saying they should have been beggars all the time asking for a, a free ride. But they're not relying on him. They're not praising him. They're not thanking him. They don't have this relationship built up yet. But even in their hard-hearted blindness and deafness, the disciples would be promised this understanding from Jesus. In John 14, verse 25, These things I have spoken to you while being present with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to you your remembrance all things that I said to you. That is our hope. That is our joy and our strength. While we forget and we are dull, we have this Holy Spirit that has been promised to the disciples at that time that would bring them into the knowledge of Christ, that would bring them into the fullness of Christ, that would bring to them the remembrance of all things. And we have that. If we will seek Him, He will pour out abundantly upon us all the riches of who He is. John 16, Jesus says to the disciples, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when He, the Spirit of truth, has come, He will guide you into all truth. For He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak and He will tell you things to come. He will glorify Me, for He will take of what is Mine and declare it to you. All things that the Father has are Mine. Therefore I said that He will take of Mine and declare it to you. That is our hope. That that Spirit of God will continually speak to us and direct us and lead us into a depth with Him. 
Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, Paul gives this encouragement. He says, Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Jesus had begun to build in those apostles, those disciples, and yet they were far from where they needed to be. But we see them now where they ended up and how God worked in their lives. Brothers and sisters, many of you will have opportunities to be ambassadors for Christ that you've never dreamed of. But you must seek Him. You must cry out for Him. You must allow His Holy Spirit to lead and draw you nearer and nearer and nearer to Him. And you cannot do that without spending much time in His Word and much time with Him in prayer. And I'm not being legalistic. I'm telling you, you cannot know Him unless you feed upon His Word and you spend time with Him. Otherwise, we will be a a congregation of kind of dull and hard-hearted disciples in that boat trying to figure out whether he's talking about bread or whether he's talking about sin. We don't want to be there. We want to know him and grasp him and follow him desperately. And the promises are abundant. If we seek him, we will find him. He will pour himself out upon us. Now, some of us here are not even on the boat with Christ. We have stayed on the shore. We are back with the Pharisees. We are in unbelief and unwillingness to walk with Him. There comes a time if you stay there where Jesus will leave. And I don't know when that is. But the Bible constantly urges us that now is the time of salvation. And I urge you, don't fool around on the shore with death. You are a walking dead person until you will turn and follow Christ Jesus. And the risk that you are running, it, you, it's unfathomable of what awaits you in hell for an eternity. Now, I believe with all my heart on the sovereign work of God in the salvation of men and women. That those whom he has chosen will be his children. But I also believe that we are to urge men and women to leave their foolish ignorance and rebellion and come and follow Christ. For there is an eternity that awaits. And we are warned what that is. Do not stay on the wide and broad road that leads to destruction. For the Bible says many enter into it. But come follow Christ. You will be given what He promises. He says the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. Overflowing. More than you've ever imagined. Uh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you so, so much for your word. Thank you so much. Lord, I, I, I cry out to you in thanksgiving that you didn't leave me when I was so wrapped up in my sin and my rebellion and my love of self, my hypocrisy, Father, that in your kindness and mercy, you've snatched me out of that. And you have done that same thing to many men and women here. Lord, we praise you and thank you. But Father, we, we tend to be like these disciples at times at this stage where we are absorbed with self and we're absorbed with the world and we're not looking to you and seeking you. We don't 
We don't grasp your power. We don't grasp your purpose or even the person of who you really are. Lord, reveal yourself to us. Mercifully, show yourself and, and, and take us, Father, and use us for your purposes on this earth. Lord, we, we believe in many ways that the time is growing short of the freedoms that we have, the opportunities that we have. But Lord, perhaps we've been like the Laodicean church and we've been lazy and fat and well-fed while brothers and sisters of ours in, in places where they must run and they must seek you in hiding and they must stand up for you with the risk of death have become your, your lean and your effective messengers. Lord, make us to be faithful. Help us to see you and to walk with you no matter the cost. Prepare us for the tests ahead that we will be found faithful to you. Then your name will be glorified through us. Father, Father, none of us are able to do that. But by your spirit, we pray that you will work in, in us and through us and be glorified. Thank you for these brothers and sisters. Lord, thank you for your word. In your name we pray. Amen.